All right, well, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 is where we will be this morning. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at FCQ. We're glad that you have joined us this morning for worship. We're uh, walking through the book of Daniel, and so we'll be in Daniel 4 this morning with a very, very interesting story in Daniel 4 that I think will have a lot in it to challenge us and to draw us closer to the heart of God this morning. So Daniel 4 is where we will start. One of the most formative events in my life was the first time I ever spent a significant amount of time interacting with people with special needs. It was probably four or five years ago This uh, during the summer. I went and served at a camp for children with special needs, Camp Blessing. And it was really my first time to ever be face-to-face with so much of that kind of disability and to see what, what that kind of life is like and what people who take care of people with special needs go through and, and to see the challenges that they face in their life and then to really be confronted with the kind of questions that you're only confronted when you see another human being who's different from you and who has a different life than you and, and maybe a kind of life that you couldn't even imagine having. And so I've talked about my time at Camp Blessing before and we as, as a church have sent money their way and partnered with them in, in various ways. Um, but I was partnered up with an eight-year-old named Spencer who had uh, severe autism. He was nonverbal, and, and we just had the time of our lives, and, and Spencer and his family are still friends to this day. And um, I want to tell you this morning, though, about another camper who was there that very first week uh, who really kind of caused me to think some things through and who God really used to, to work on me. And I think we'll see this ties into Daniel 4 this morning. Um, there's a camper named Jeff, and Jeff was different than the rest of the campers because Jeff was older. Jeff was our age. At the time, I was 21 or 22. Jeff was 22 years old. He was the oldest camper at the camp. And so it's one thing to see and interact with little kids who have special needs. And it's a little bit different of a thing to see someone your own age, right, who, who has these um, severe disabilities. So Jeff was very uh, mentally disabled and, and physically disabled. He was bound to a wheelchair. Um, he could kind of get up if he had a whole lot of help. He was a big old boy, so you need like three or four people to kind of hold him up and help him. Um, and, and, and watching Jeff and interacting with Jeff, and, and one of my good friends was actually Jeff's counselor, caused me to kind of work through a lot of things in my own life, um, particularly seeing the joy that Jeff had um, and the joy that really most people with special needs have. I think it challenges us and forces us to realize a few key fundamental things about life. But Jeff, the highlight of his week was worship. And so we had worship every night at Camp Blessing, and it was one of the more special times of the week. We come into this big room and worship. And Jeff, man, he... He loved an open mic, okay? There's an open mic around. He wanted to make some noise in that thing. Uh, uh, but he loved worship, and what he loved most about worship was being able to stand up for worship because he saw everyone else around him standing up. And that was really his way of, I mean, every, you could just feel it in the room if you were in there. That was his version of singing, was standing up and, and giving honor to God that way. And, and, I mean, nothing gave him more joy than doing that. And so every night at worship, you have, again, three or four strong guys around him. I obviously wasn't there. It's off in the corner, okay? Um, but three or four strong guys around him kind of holding it up, and Jeff is just, man, he's into it um, in worship. And, and, and watching that and, and interacting with Jeff, and, again, I think any sort of interaction with people with special needs, one of the things that forces you to do is to realize that life is a gift. In all forms, life is a gift. And the only way, at least as Christians, you and I should interact with that gift is receiving it and receiving it as creatures, receiving it as people who aren't in control, who haven't authored it, but who instead know a God who loves them and who receive the gifts that he's given them out of his love. Um, You start to wonder, right? So it's one thing to look at someone your age, so all things considered, someone who is in your basic situation of life, someone your age, and then to compare yourself with them, right? To be like, well, I'm a little smarter than they are. 
right? I've made some better decisions than they've made. Uh, I've gone to some better places than they've gone, right? They've kind of deserved a lot of the mess they're in. It's another thing, though, to see someone your age, all things considered, equal to you, who never even had the chance, right? I mean, who never, I mean, never had the mental or physical capabilities to even make the good choices or bad choices that you were able to make uh, or not make as you kind of developed along in your life. And it, it confronts you with this kind of, again, deep truth that, that life is a gift and your life is a gift and that the things that, at least personally, I take pride in, the things that, that kind of puff up my soul, the things that make me think that I'm a big deal, ultimately are not my doing. So you start to, to think through, okay, what, what separates me from Jeff and, and what are the things that I'm... I mean, the, the reason I feel sorry for people with special needs and the reason I think most of us do is because we think they're missing out on so many things, right? I, I look at Jeff and I think he's missing out on so many things. He can't do all the things that make my life worthwhile, and I start to think about all the things that do make my life worthwhile and, and do kind of puff up my spirit and, and kind of create some pride inside of me. And, and you can trace them all back to this gift of life. It wasn't my choosing. I didn't choose to be born with a mind that worked. It might be debatable, okay, depending on who you ask. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't choose those intellectual capabilities, right? I didn't choose to be able to walk. I didn't choose to be able to have five fingers, Ten fingers if you count both hands, right? We don't choose those things, right? We're not, you call this like the shack rule, right? Okay, when Shaquille O'Neal dunks and celebrates, it's kind of ridiculous. What's there to celebrate, right? You're seven feet tall, of course you should be dunking, right? That's not impressive, right? You didn't, at no point did you choose to be this freak athlete of nature, right? That just kind of happened to you. Life just kind of happens to us. It's a gift that, that we should receive. And, and this was the first time I can remember Real clearly, God coming into my life and speaking to me and working to cripple my pride and working to kill that which was inside of me that said I I was important and I was big and I was special and I had done certain things and so deserved certain things and was owed certain things. And it was the first time God came to me and said, you need to understand everything that you have is a gift. And there's no place for pride in there. Um, Look at the end of Daniel 4 with me, verse 37, the very last verse of Daniel 4. We'll start with the end um, and then we'll work our way back through the chapter. But I want to just get straight off the bat here. Here's the lesson. Here's the, here's the big point of Daniel chapter 4. Here's where we'll land this morning. Because Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he's going to learn this, this lesson, okay? God's going to cripple his pride in a dramatic way. And here's where he ends up after this journey in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. If you're an underliner or a highlighter, that last phrase there is, is important. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God will come in in, in this chapter and, and through a series of events that we'll see and walk through, he humbles Nebuchadnezzar. He takes his pride and he humbles him. And, and Nebuchadnezzar learns this truth about God, um, which is that if you understand God and if you're in a proper relationship with him, he humbles those who are proud. He causes you to, to look and to see and to receive life as a gift. Now, this morning we're going to read with a kind of different strategy than we've read Daniel so far. So as we've walked through the book of Daniel, we have been relating to Daniel and his friends, okay, the Jewish exiles in Babylon as God's people. And we've said, well, we're God's people as well. We're the church, and, and we often live in a culture and society around us that doesn't seem to have our best interests at heart. And so we can learn from them and how they were faithful in that situation. But this morning we're going to look at Nebuchadnezzar, okay, the Gentile king, and we're going to relate to him. I think in some ways we might be more like Nebuchadnezzar than Daniel and his friends, for better or for worse at certain points, right? But, but sometimes we see Nebuchadnezzar and what he does, and we think, 
Maybe that's a little bit more like how I act, and that's, that's more how I am than, than Daniel and his friends. And there's another way to read Daniel, looking more historically, that says, you and I, for the most part, I believe, are Gentiles. Okay? We're not Jewish by, by birth and by ethnicity. We were brought into the people of God. We were grafted onto the tree. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar is a Gentile, right? When we look back at the story, that's who we historically relate to. We come from that. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to struggle throughout the book of Daniel to understand God and to understand his sins. And you see these kind of half-hearted confessions and, and witness testimonies to the God of Israel throughout. And that's kind of sometimes where you and I are, right? As people who, who are struggling to figure out who this God is and what it means to follow him and what it means to learn to confess our sins in light of what he's shown us. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar learns this lesson that, that God humbles the proud and that that is... Um, kind of this key characteristic of what God does in the world. It's this key theme throughout scripture. Um, and so we're going to take our cue from Nebuchadnezzar, okay? And so we'll say at the start that Christians need to learn. We're called to understand that pride is a sin. We're called to understand that pride is a sin. Now, this might seem like an obvious statement, but I don't think it is that obvious of a statement. It might seem like a, a no-brainer here. But this truth actually is at odds with most of history and most of society, okay? Um, William Willimon uh, is an author. He has this cute little book called Sinning Like a Christian. Kind of this catchy little name. The, the kind of point of it is looking at sins through a Christian lens, through a very specifically biblical and Christian lens. He has a quote. He says this, Pride is a specifically Christian sin. Pride is a specifically Christian sin. The rest of the world, uninformed by the story of the scriptures, considers pride an essential characteristic of the well-functioning personality. But Christians are taught to be more suspicious. Christians are taught to be more suspicious. C.S. Lewis, the great um, Christian author, said, For Christians, pride is the great sin. He capitalizes this, the great sin. The part of morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. Particularly, you and I live in a very therapeutic culture um, where there's almost this god of self-esteem right and you kind of want to pump up and pump up and pump up self-esteem um as if um that's kind of the way that you're healthy functioning adult in our society now this is not new to us this goes all the way back to the ancients okay so aristotle this the the kind of key author of virtues he considered pride a virtue it, it was uh humility servanthood was actually a vice it was opposite when jesus comes onto the scene in the gospels and he starts talking about being humble and being a servant and if you want to be first you should be last this is flipping kind of the way the world saw things on its head. Um, it's a very specifically Christian thing to think that pride is a sin, to think that pride can be a dangerous thing. Um, most of the world around us wants to elevate pride, wants to make you feel more prideful, right? So, I mean, you can look at kind of any little subgroup or subculture and see um, gay pride and black pride and, and pride for your nation and pride for whatever kind of little subgroup you have. And we're proud of FC Cube and, and there's pride that kind of builds up. Now, there might be good types of pride. There might be bad types of pride. It's largely going to depend on how you kind of define the term. Um, but scripturally, when you're, you're talking about pride, you're thinking of not just self-respect and not just self-esteem, a proper self-esteem, a proper look at yourself, but a kind of competitive, boastful elevation of self over others. A pride is a, a competitive, boastful elevation of self over others. Pride is looking around to the room and going, I'm smarter than all of you. Or at least like 75% of you. I'm better looking, right? I'm, I'm, you're elevating yourself. You're, you're boasting in yourself. It's selfish at its core. Now, what's careful to notice here is we, we're going to talk about pride this morning is the opposite of pride is not thinking lowly of yourself, right? That's, that's actually just the other coin of pride. It's still selfish, right? It's still prideful. So there's not that much of a difference between the person who says, I'm smarter than all of you, and the person who says, I'm the stupidest person in the room. The similarity is you're still thinking about yourself. 
right? You're still comparing yourself to other people. Um, you might be saying you're the best at the worst, right? But you still have this competitive nature. That's how you see the world around you. It all revolves around you. Um, so, so Christians say humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? It's replacing your concern for yourself and how you compare to the world around you to instead a love and service for God and a love and service for neighbors. Now, Christians, again, say that sin, um, that pride is a deadly sin. It's one of the great seven deadly sins, and, and it's usually listed at the top, seen as one of the more deadly sins. It's very dangerous, both in its results, what pride leads to, we'll see this morning, and in its subtlety. Pride is a dangerous sin because it's, it's almost always lurking around there. And the moment, right, I mean, the moment you say, wow, I'm really humble, then you start to be proud about your human. I mean, you see how it works, right? I mean, it's kind of always there around the corner. And in fact, if you watch closely, some people, quote unquote, beat other deadly sins with the sin of pride. So you have sins like lust and anger um, and gluttony. And some people, the way they conquer those temptations in their life is to say, people who, who are gluttons or people who are angry and can't control their anger, that's beneath me. I'm better than those type of people. So that's why I won't give in to those temptations and do those kind of sins. Do you see what happens, right? I mean, you, you're able to conquer these other sins, but pride is still the master of your life. You're doing it so that you can compare yourself to other people and come out on top. It's a very dangerous sin, and it's one that religious people are very prone to adopt, right? I mean, religious people, of all people, shouldn't be prideful, but, but, but usually are. They're equally caught by pride. Um, C.S. Lewis, again, has a quote. He says, Many worship an imaginary God, who use his presence to imagine how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. Have you ever seen this before? Have you ever known someone like this, right? Whoever their God was, it liked them more than other people, and it kind of served their purpose of boasting up their own self-image and their own superiority over others. He says, Lewis says, the test for religious people is this. Here's the test. Whenever we find out um, that religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we're better than someone else, we can be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil, right? If whatever happens when you're in church, whatever happens when you worship, if whatever happens when you're reading the Bible makes you, one, feel good about yourself, and particularly better than other people, right? It's probably not the work of the Spirit. He says the real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you find yourself a small, often dirty object. So what does pride look like? What are its effects? And then how are we to combat it? How are we to, to counter pride? Um, Nebuchadnezzar is going to give us a great example of this. So we'll read Daniel 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, we'll take our cues from him this morning and looking at the, the characteristics of pride and, and the effects of pride and then how you and I might avoid this very deadly temptation. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, um, Daniel 4, we'll pick it up in verse 1. If you would read with me. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So this is kind of like an open letter to the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar's writing uh, kind of a witness letter to the kingdom, and he's going to describe the events that led him to this conclusion, that led him to giving witness to Daniel's God, the God of Israel. So verse 4, he flashes back a little bit. Here's the story. 
I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Two key descriptions there. I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. We know this boy has some dream problems, okay? He constantly has these dreams that, that make him scared and afraid. Um, so he makes a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Have you seen this story play out before? Yes, we have. Nebuchadnezzar's a dream, wants an interpretation. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Um, now, this is a clue here that Nebuchadnezzar has not really gotten it yet, right? We've seen kind of some confessions by Nebuchadnezzar, some testimonies by him where he seems to praise God. But again, Nebuchadnezzar is in this polytheistic world with all kinds of different gods. And it's really easy in this intellectual framework just to take another god and put him in there among the mix, right? Um, Nebuchadnezzar is still calling Daniel by um, his name after his own god, right? He says, you have the spirit of the most holy gods, this kind of pantheon polytheistic view that Nebuchadnezzar has. But nonetheless, he calls Daniel. Um, he does this a little bit differently than the last time we saw it, right? There's no threat of death. Um, there's no making them tell him the dream. So he's learned a few lesson, lessons. Um, and so he tells Daniel the dream, verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. So imagine this with us as we read, okay? Try to picture this in your mind. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Okay, so there's the image. There's the, the first part of his dream. This tree grows up. It stretches to the very top of the heavens. You can see it from anywhere on the earth. It's this huge overarching tree, and it seems to be providing life and sustenance to the creatures around it. Okay, now this is a common image from the ancient Near East, okay, for kings and kingdoms. Um, it was the tree of life, this cosmic tree that grows up and, and has reach and power and authority over all the earth and also provides shelter and peace and security for them. Think about um, the Romans when they came into power, right? We'll give peace to the whole earth um, or universal rule. Um, now, there's also a, a strong strand of prophetic um, texts that use this image as well, this image of kingdoms, Assyria and Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, having this, being this tree, right, that stretches out over the whole earth. But in the prophets, the tree is usually cut down. Right? It's cut down to size. God comes in and says, your imaginary universal rule where you control everything and, and give sustenance to everything is going to be replaced by my real universal rule where I really control everything and really give sustenance and peace to everything. You also remember Jesus, when he comes in the Gospels, actually tells a parable that refers to this chapter right here in Daniel and to chapters in Ezekiel 17 and 31 where he uses this image of a tree as well. Remember what Jesus says about the kingdom? He says, my kingdom starts as a small seed. And then it grows, and it grows, and it grows into a large tree where all the birds come find shade and rest in it. And they find life there. Jesus throws back. He says, remember that dream Nebuchadnezzar had? Remember how that was cut down and that was false? Well, what I'm doing with my life and my death and my resurrection through the Spirit is building the real tree, the real tree of life. 
where people really will come find life and find sustenance. So this is the dream. You have the tree there. Um, and then he says in the visions in my head as I lay in bed, verse 13, and behold, a watcher, this is a word for an angel, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. So the tree gets cut down to the stump. All the branches are, are taken off. All the beasts of the field run away from it. So you have the stump. Now get ready, okay, the nonlinear logic of a dream. Have you ever had that where you have a dream and you're telling someone about it? And you're like, and there were marshmallows, and we were in the ocean, and then we were in the clouds, and then you were there, but you weren't really there, but you didn't look like you, right? And, and the, you're starting to realize, this didn't make no sense at all, right? That's how dreams work, okay? So kind of mixing metaphors here, mixing images. So tree turns into a stump, and then watch what happens. Try to picture this the best you can, I guess. Um, it turns into a stump. It's bound by this iron and bronze. It's wet with the dew of heaven. And then let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Um, Go back to verse 15. Leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with the band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field, and then let him be wet with the dew of heaven. So there's this person there. The stump turns into a person um, with the grass of the earth. And then let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. So this tree goes from being this huge tree to being a stump, to being a person, to now being a beast, to now be turned into this kind of vile animal. It's cut down to size. The sentence is by a decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. Now, this next little phrase is important. You might want to underline it. You'll see this again and again, Daniel 4. To the end, the purpose of this, that the living might know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. There's a theme throughout the book of Daniel, right? Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in control. He thinks he owns everything. And as we'll see, he's very prideful about this. But in reality, over and over, God is going to say, I'm the one who's sovereign. I'm the one who's directing world events, world history. The kings and queens of the world don't run history. I run history. And if you have a kingdom, it's because I've allowed you to have a kingdom and you're called to use it wisely. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw and you, about Shazar, tell me the interpretation. Because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, Daniel's a dream interpreter. That's what he does. He's pretty good at it. So Daniel's going to give him the interpretation. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. But he answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Now, this is interesting. Daniel and, and Nebuchadnezzar's relationship here is very, very interesting to me. Okay? There's this sense of warmth and friendship between them, um, where Daniel is serving him, and, and in a sense, Daniel doesn't even want this dream to be about Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't want him to be the one who's chopped down. And Nebuchadnezzar has this kind of friendship warmth to Daniel, right? He says, hey, I, don't worry about whatever the interpretation is. Just tell me the truth. I'm not going to shoot the messenger, okay? You've got, you got my trust. I just want to know the truth. I want to know what this dream is about. Never forget, though, that this Nebuchadnezzar is the same one who destroyed Jerusalem, He's the one who came in and blasphemed. He pillaged the temple. He said, my gods have defeated your gods. He sets himself up in oppression to God's people. This is not a good person, right? While there is this ambiguous relationship between Daniel and his king, never forget, Nebuchadnezzar is this evil, vile figure, right? I mean, imagine the most evil political figure you can think of. This is how they would have viewed Nebuchadnezzar. He came and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. And yet... Daniel is willing to serve him. 
willing to show him respect and submissions. We've seen in Romans 13, we've talked about this, a Christian's response, people of God, they, they have this respect and submission and, and sense of authority to their government because they know that God has put them in place. But Daniel's friends were also very willing to draw the line when it needs to be drawn and say, no more. I will not follow you in this action. And if you want to kill me, you can kill me. His three friends get thrown into the furnace. We'll see Daniel himself gets into some trouble of his own. Um, but Daniel doesn't want to tell him the interpretation. In fact, he wants the interpretation to be about someone else. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar asked him, tell me the truth. So he says, the tree you saw, verse 20, which grew and became strong, so its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, you are that tree, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached to the heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from the heaven and saying, Chop down the tree, destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know, again, here it is again, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed to you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So there's a conditional judgment here. Therefore, O King, verse 27, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there might be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. So he gets his advice, okay? The interpretation's about you. You're going to be struck down because you think you control everything and you really don't. You need to acknowledge who's really in control of the world. You're not the author of your own life and of the, the uh, world's life, of the world's history. Um, and he says, now you can get out of this, okay? There's a way to avoid this judgment, which is repentance. And notice what he tells him. He, he tells him to repent. He doesn't say, so here's what you got to do, okay? Repent for your sins. You need to get back to quiet time every day, all right? You need to pray in the morning. You need your Bible every day. Those kind of, no, he says, you need to be kind to the poor, to the oppressed. You need to practice righteousness, justice. You need to do what's right in the world. You need to discern correctly between evil and good. You need to take care of those who are oppressed, who are in poverty, who are being abused and taken advantage of. This is the, the utmost sin in the Old Testament. Okay. Now there's nothing wrong with, again, quiet time and, and reading your Bible today and praying. I do those things. You should do those things, right? But sometimes we focus on those so much to the extent that we lose kind of a bigger picture of sin according to the Bible and what repentance should be like. Nebuchadnezzar is told, look around you and look at the people who are suffering. You need to take care of them. That's how you can get out of this judgment. But he doesn't listen. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, here it is. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built in my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, is not this great Babylon, which I've built with my power for the glory of my majesty. So the Babylon Nebuchadnezzar had built, okay, his capital city, it was indeed a great thing. 
Um, I don't know how much you know about ancient history or the ancient world, but there were seven wonders of the ancient world, okay? Not Asherdome, okay? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the, the ancient wonders of the world. And two of them, two of those seven, were actually in Babylon, in the city that Nebuchadnezzar built for himself and for his royal palace. Um, one of them was the Hanging Gardens. Anyone familiar with this? Um, the Hanging Gardens that Nebuchadnezzar built? It was this huge, I mean overwhelmingly awesome system of, of irrigation and this, these beautiful hanging gardens. And he actually built it for his princess, for his, his wife, uh, a Median princess. And she wasn't from Babylon. Babylon's real flat. She was from a very hilly, foresty place. And so he built it for her so that when she would look out of the palace, everywhere she would look, it would look like her own landscape. It would look like home for her. Guys, take a lesson, okay? Some, Nebuchadnezzar is nothing if he's not a romantic. All right, this huge <laughs> building project for his wife. But again, Anyone on the face of the earth, if they would have come and seen this, they would have said, I've never seen anything like this before. I've, this is a feat of human power and will and glory. What in the world? This is so impressive. I mean, think of the way people felt when we landed on the moon and that kind of pride that stirs up and, and just the idea of man, right? We've done it. We've gone to another planet. We've landed on the moon. Unless you're a conspiracy theorist, okay? And then we just make really good videos. <laughs> I can tell who is and who's not by who laughed. Some of you are like, no, that's, look it up. They're shadows that don't work right. Just YouTube that and you'll see. Um, and then, okay, so, yeah, that, that sense of, like, pride, right? We're able to do it. Look at what we're able to control and able to conquer and those kind of things. They would have looked at these hanging gardens and gone, wow. And Nebuchadnezzar looks out and he, he almost rightfully says, this is pretty cool. I'm pretty cool. Look at what I've done. And, and the second of the, the seven ancient wonders of the world was this wall, the city wall he'd built around Babylon. And this is not like a regular wall, okay, like a fence. Um, this is, again, at this time, the biggest, baddest wall that you'd have ever seen. Um, so historians would tell us that you could take a, this is the kind of way you measure the width, you could take a four-horse chariot, and there was space to turn around a four-horse chariot on the top of the wall. So that was the, the width of this mighty a majestic wall. Again, anyone in the world would have come to Babylon and they would have been overwhelmed. They would have never seen anything like this. Nebuchadnezzar was rich and powerful. He was the most powerful man on the face of the earth, probably the richest. And he was a, he was a genius. He was a genius military man. He was a genius builder. In a lot of senses, he's almost like the biblical character of Solomon. He was able to do magnificent things as well with his own wealth and power and intelligence. And he looks out over it and his heart's filled with pride. And we'll see, he'll, he'll receive the punishment that was prophesied for him. But let's stop here and talk about pride for a little bit, okay? So, so we're called to understand pride as a sin. And, and you can kind of see what pride looks like and what it feels like and smells like from the life of Nebuchadnezzar. So um, here's what we'll say. Pride makes us look at life. It made Nebuchadnezzar look at life. And it makes us look at life in two ways. We see life, one, as by us, and then two, as for us. When we're prideful, when we have this, this sense of pride building up inside of us, we look out around us and go, this is by me. I authored this. I did this. And then all this is for me. It's for me and it's for my consumption. Again, Nebuchadnezzar's at ease in his house. He's prosperous in his palace. Over and over again in Daniel 4, um, Daniel says that um, the lesson Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn was that it wasn't actually his kingdom. He actually wasn't able to do all those things. He shouldn't be prideful in them. And he walks out again and his fatal flaw here is when he says... Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Um, I wonder how often we look around at our lives and what we're able to do. And we're just impressed with ourselves. We go, is this not the life that I've built? Is this not the thing that I've done? Is this not the situation that I've created? 
for my name, for my majesty, for my comfort. And we look around and we say, this is by me. I've authored this. Tim Keller, um, one of my favorite pastors, calls this cosmic plagiarism. Cosmic plagiarism. It's where you claim credit for something that God has done. You look at your life or the lives of other people and you say, I wrote that song. I painted that picture. I built that statue. And the scriptures would teach you over and over and over again that God wrote the song and God painted the picture and God built the statue. And we think, okay, it's, it's just kind of the people we are in the, the situation that we're in. We think again, no, 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 you don't understand. I did it, right? I did it and I can prove it to you because there are people around me who didn't do it. And they had the same opportunities. <clears throat> they made bad choices when I made good choices. I worked hard. I, I earned my money, right? Where, where other people didn't earn their money. I stayed. I spent late nights. I did those kind of things. Again, think back to my buddy Jeff. And remember that for Christians, all of life is a gift. You did not earn your money. If you're thinking with a biblical imagination, it's hard to think. It's hard to experience and take in. We think, no, 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 again, you don't understand. I definitely earned my money. I earned my stuff. I earned, my, I earned the life that I'm living right now. And then, again, take it all the way back. So whatever you're proud of in your life, take it back, take it back, take it back, take it back to the point when you were born. And ask yourself those questions. Did you choose to be born with the mental capabilities to make whatever amount of money you've been able to make? Did you choose to be born with the physical capabilities to be able to do whatever it is you've been able to do? Did you choose to be born with the social abilities to be able to relate to the people you need to relate to in the way you need to, to be able to create the life that you have around you right now? The answer to all these questions is no. Did you choose to be born into the family that you were born into? In the place and time that you were born? In the part of the world where you were born? And we think about, on one hand, the randomness of it all. I think a more Christian way to talk about it would be the giftingness, right? It's God's gift, his decision. He's the author. But to why you were born in one of the wealthiest, most powerful nations of all history and not in a third world country. Why are you alive and you didn't die when you were eight years old, eight years old of HIV? Is it because you did something? Is it really because you made a choice and you earned it somehow? Is there really some sense of authorship to that? Can you really say... I did that. Or are you forced to confess it was a gift? It was a gift. All of my skills, all my situations, my circumstances have been gifts from God. I didn't author them and I shouldn't plagiarize them. But pride looks at everything around you and says, I was able to do this. I was able to, to author this. And success, I think, increases the temptation for this type of pride. And, and if we're honest, we're very successful people, just our congregation. We've got very successful businessmen, very successful people, um, very intelligent people, lots of PhDs in our little tiny congregation, okay? I mean, I mean, we're just, we're successful. Christians as a whole, particularly in our area, are just successful people. We do well in the world. We do well with our families. We do well in whatever endeavors we run after. And there's perhaps nothing wrong with doing well. Again, if you go the other end of the spectrum, you're just as prideful, right? There's, there's not a sense where you should say, well, I guess since I don't deserve this, since it's all a gift, I won't take any of it. I'll feel like a jerk. I'll feel guilty. I'll just throw it all away. No, no, no. Again, you're still focused on yourself. The goal is not to reject the gifts God's given you. It's to receive them 
as gifts. Do you see the difference there? The difference when you, you, you realize, right, I didn't earn these things is not to say, well, then I guess I don't deserve them and I'll just throw them away and live in self-pity. It's just to simply say, well, then I'll receive them as gifts. And I'll never once cross over that line thinking, I did this, I, I accomplished this. And the second, the second kind of characteristic you see there of pride is, is you see life is for you. So look in Daniel 4 again at the, the, the repentance that Daniel calls him to in verse 37, 27. O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You want to know a sign that perhaps you've been infected by pride? You want to know a way to continually get infected by pride? It's to ignore the poor and the oppressed, the people enslaved, the people who are being abused, to, to not look after them. This is one of Nebuchadnezzar's flaws, right? He's built all these big gardens and this big, huge wall, but yet there are people all around him are being, one, killed by him in this violent empire, and then two, oppressed and in poverty and abused and those types of things. The, the prophets in the Old Testament would have a see large cities of civilizations, and Mike would say, those buildings were built with blood because there are people on the corner of that building dying of starvation, you built this great garden for your wife, but look at all the evil and injustice around you. Why not use your resources for them? Well, because a prideful heart says, I've got stuff. I'm more important, so I'm going to enjoy it. I'll use my resources for myself. You can easily, I think, see where your resources go, your time, your money, your skills, your thoughts, your intentions. Where do those things go? If they all circle back to you, that's probably a pretty red flag, pretty big red flag that, that there's some pride creeping up in your heart, that there's some pride in there. We have, as a society, moralized self-sufficiency. You see this in, in the political conversation a lot. We've made self-sufficiency a, a, self-sufficiency a moral quality and dependency um, amoral, so, so something bad, something to, to be frowned upon. And so um, I feel this, right? So if you're anything like me, okay, I'm just a good middle-class sugar kid, okay? Um, when someone asks me for money, I immediately look down on them. Because again, dependency or having to ask someone for something, to me, is, is the opposite of a moral quality. It's an immoral quality. I think, what big mistakes have you must have made in your life? What kind of person must you be that you can't take care of yourself? That you don't have family or friends who will be able to take care of you? What kind of mistakes are you going to go make with whatever help you get? You're just an evil, wicked person, and you deserve what you got. And you deserve what you're going to get. Now, there's perhaps nothing wrong with self-sufficiency. It's probably better than worse for people to be able to take care of themselves, be able to take care of their family and friends in those kind of situations. But there's a larger sense when, again, Christians are called to see us all as very dependent on each other. And for us to see one of the ways God sustains people is through the people he's blessed, through the people he's given blessings to. That's one of the ways God's and intends to and desires to funnel his blessings, funnel his, his resources. We're generous. This is one of the, the ways we get off when we talk about tithing. And we, we say 10% belongs to God. Biblically, that's actually not really correct. Biblically, it all belongs to God. You don't have money. There's no like 10% cut to God and then you get to go do whatever you want with 90%. That's not how, that's not how it works. There's this idea of stewardship. It was God's and he has allotted you a portion of it. And you need to do with it what he desires you to do with that. And, and it might be a certain percentage of this organization or this community or this group, those kind of things. But all of your money is spent wisely and spent 
after God's own heart. Why? Because it's, it's his. It's not yours. And so the, the more you and I work for the poor and for the oppressed, the more we, we look after them, the more we cry for them, the more we participate in their redemption, the more and more I think our pride is kind of sucked out of us. The less we do that, and the less we feel called to do that, I mean, when you hear something like that, when, when there's no response in your own heart, perhaps there's a sense of pride there. Why should I worry about them? Why should I spend their, my resources on them? I'm in a fine situation. I stayed out of that situation. They can take care of themselves, those kind of things. So this is what you're seeing happening in Nebuchadnezzar's life and his heart. I think perhaps sometimes, if we're not careful, it happens in ours. Let's keep reading. Verse 31. So we'll see this pride take its effect on Nebuchadnezzar, verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, then fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. And his nails were like bird's claws. Now you can actually see examples of this type of a person if you go to an indie music festival. Okay, you'll see lots of... I'm joking. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, though, he, he faces the punishment of his, of his interpretation, of his prophecy. He, he gets what the, the dream had told him was coming, right? You're going to become a beast. You're going you're gonna to no longer be the human being that you were intended to be. Some demonic activity in here. <laughs> Taking over the speakers here. Appreciate you. So Nebuchadnezzar, he, he gets that the dream told him was coming, right? You're going to become a beast. Now, there's actually a diagnosis for this. Um, um, clinical psychologists have observed this type of thing happening. It's called lycanthropy. Okay, it's where you um, a depressed. It's a depressive uh, mental illness where you start to take the form of an animal. Uh, you start to express yourself in those kind of ways. Um, it used to be very well documented in the ancient world. Um, there's a, a psychologist. Um, G.M. Barker, who says he's seen this a few times in his own clinical practice, but he says the, the reason he thinks it was more common back then was it was less acceptable, depression was, right? People were less able to understand it and understand your emotions with it and less able to, to deal with it, and so you were driven to more and more extreme ways of expressing how you felt inside. I don't know if you've ever been there, right? If anyone in here has dealt with like clinical severe depression where you feel like you're not a human anymore and there's like just this gap of this vacuum in your soul... Well, imagine people around you not being able to understand that at all, having no way to understand that, and how you might be driven to act out more and more and more to try to get people to realize this is how you're feeling, this is what's happening to you. Um, or we have a, a, a very um, well-spoken of psychiatrist in our first service, and, and after the service he said, I've never seen that before, I've read about it, but I have seen um, just someone in a, a rage, someone with mental illness in a rage, and there are times when they don't look human anymore, right? I mean, when... when Things just happen to them, and they, they're just out of their mind. This is what's happening in Ebenezer. But the more important point than the kind of medical the, uh, 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 action here, the medical, the medical event here, is the theological event right behind this. What happens to someone enamored by themselves? Well, they're no longer human. They become a beast. They become alienated from civilization, unable to do what, what humans are called to and supposed to do and enjoy. We might say that pride is deeply dehumanizing. It's a deeply dehumanizing characteristic. It takes us away from what we're called to be as the Imago Dei, as the image of God, as human beings, male and female. A couple of ways perhaps pride dehumanizes. Um, surely you are aware that pride is kind of this poison for relationships. I mean, if you want to see a relationship get poisoned real fast, um, think of the 
um, way that pride sometimes will do that will create resentment and create competition and create bitterness toward people on, on both ends. In fact, right now, think of the three people in the room around you who are more prideful than you are. No, I'm just joking. See what happened there? Some of you automatically like, this person, this person, this person, right? That's pride itself, right? It's such a dangerous, it's a subtle, it's a subtle thing. It comes in on all different aspects and corners. But one of the things it does, right, is it filters into these relationships and it creates cracks and gaps and it alienates you from your community, which is what it means to be a human being. One of the, the big, one of the big parts of being a human being, one of the big parts of being a Christian, belonging to a community, with pride that, that's broken apart. Um, it hinders your relationship with God. Um, Lewis again called pride the anti-God state of mind, at the heart of idolatry. Instead of saying, God did these things, you're saying, I did these things. You're substituting yourself for the noun God. He also has this little one-liner I like. He says, a, a proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. Right? I mean, if you're focused on other people and, and, and how you're better than them, you're never going to look up. You're never going to focus on God and, and be able to approach him and all of his greatness and, and wonder. Um, so let's see what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will and among the hosts of the heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me. And I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right. His ways are just. And those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar learns his lesson by being reduced to a beast here. He looks up to heaven and starts to acknowledge who's really in charge. He, he starts to develop this sense of humility. In fact, this is the way we should counter pride. This is the way you and I are called to fight against pride. To counter pride, we must cultivate humility. This is the way you fight against vices in your life, okay? For every vice, there's a virtue. And sometimes the best offense or the best defense is a good offense, Sometimes the best way to, to fight against a vice in your life is to exercise and build up a virtue. So with, with money, right, if you struggle with stinginess and you struggle with um, selfishness, the best way to, to do that, to get rid of that, is just start giving stuff away, right? If you practice generosity, you'll find your stinginess shrinking, decaying, eroding. If you find yourself a prideful person, the best way to to decay and erode this is to start practicing humility, intentional small acts. Remember, we did a series on virtues and how that works. You, you do small things over time and it builds up habits. You build up the muscle of humility and, and the muscle of humility can't stand, can't sit alongside the muscle of, of pride. It displaces pride in your life. You practice it. So you, like Nebuchadnezzar, you, you create a sense of overwhelming awe at who God is. You recognize his sovereignty, his greatness. You receive life as a gift. You care for those who are other than you. You're intentional about it. You have repeated actions. You might create a plan with your family, with a loved one. How can we intentionally practice humility and so rid pride from our lives? And we'd say this as we close this morning. Humility as Christians, it grows as we worship and follow Jesus. Humility grows as we worship and follow Jesus. So Nebuchadnezzar was a man who thought he was God and was turned into a beast. And then we compare that with Jesus, 
who was God, yet became man, humbled himself, gave up his rights, so that you and I might live to serve us. Philippians 2, though in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead lowered himself, making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being humbled, yes, even to the point of death. Again, we've talked about uh, just a couple weeks ago, you become what you worship. If we really worship this Jesus, the Jesus who became man, not only that, but then died at the hands of other men, surely you and I won't develop a prideful sense of ownership and selfishness inside of us. Surely you and I will more and more start to reflect him, start to give up our rights, start to lower ourselves so we might serve other people. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 5, before this poem, he says, Have the same mind in you that was in Christ. Think this way about the world. Be a, be a one who gives up your rights, not one who hoards them and holds on to them at the expense of other people. And as we follow Christ, we're called into more and more acts of service. And we find our pride eroding and our humility growing. So as we, we end this morning, as we maybe evaluate our own hearts and, and where we are in the sense of, of pride and humility and, and maybe the dangers that, that pride is presenting to us in our lives, maybe the relationships that's breaking, maybe a relationship that's hindering with God, maybe the way it's dehumanizing us, or, or maybe the way it creeps into our lives and we don't even realize it, maybe the ways that, that we know that we need to practice more and more and more humility, we're more intentional about it, more, more focused on it. I think a good first step for most things is to come to the table and celebrate communion. To remember the body and blood of Jesus. The Eucharist has this way of cultivating humility. I think it's a humility cultivator. When you, when you come to the table in just a moment like we will, you'll remember that it was your sins that led to Jesus' death. His body, his body and blood were, were given for you, for your sins. There's a proper view of self right there when you come to the table. You also understand at the table that whatever sense of life you have, and desire and enjoy and want. At the table, you start to understand that, that life is not found in yourself, and it's not found in your desires, it's not found in your skills or abilities, but it's found through the body and blood of Jesus, through his work on your behalf. It's a proper view of yourself, of your life. Again, at the table, we commit ourselves to following and serving Christ. Whatever, whatever sense of purpose or mission or direction your life has starts to be reshaped as you come to the table each week and say, I'll follow you and I'll serve you and I'll, I'll do what I've called, been called to do for your kingdom, for your mission this week. It's a proper sense of self. It's a proper sense of your life. So this morning, as those who wish to not learn the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned, as those who wish that we can, can learn from a book right, and not from real life, we come to the table to, to practice humility and to, to ask God to continue to rid ourselves of any sense of pride that we might worship him fully, enjoy him fully, and be able to be faithful in the mission he's called us to. Let's pray together.